Hello, I'm Carrie Gard, and welcome to Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. And I think there's some people that would be okay with just general website analytics and not like being retargeted with ads. And I think that's uh, so giving giving consumers options and making those choices very clear is the way to go. Welcome back. Today's episode, I have I have a very interesting person, Alec Foster. So Alec is a privacy certified growth leader. He is currently working at a company called Stealth as the go-to market growth leader there. He had, okay, so here's a little bit about Alec before I tell you more about this conversation because you really kind of need to know Alec to understand then what we're gonna talk about. So Alec is a highly motivated, experienced marketer with a proven tracker record in developing and executing go-to market strategies, driving brand awareness, and managing cross-functional teams. He's skilled in developing growth roadmaps, leading marketing plans, and shaping companies' trajectory. He has a strong understanding of growth and lead generation targets, SEM, SEO, organic, and paid digital campaigns needed to generate marketing-qualified leads. Strong analytic skills, experience with marketing automation, CRM platforms, and ability to translate technical concepts and features into a solution point of view, differentiation, and value proposition for customers. Deep knowledge of AI ethics, global privacy laws, regulations, and best practices. And this is where my conversation with Alec goes in this idea. Let's say idea like it's not a real thing. It's absolutely a real thing, especially as more AI comes onto the scene with ChatGPT and other automation systems. You can't really have these systems without thinking about the impact on individuals. And that's really where Alec takes us. He tells a really great story that I'm not going to tell. I'm going to let him tell it of how he got into this, but it's personal. And it really set him on this journey of wanting to not only protect himself and his own data, but protect others and what that means in terms of ensuring your marketing is ethical. This is so good, y'all. It's so important and it's so timely. So I think this is one of those episodes where being where you can either sit or stand at a desk with some sort of note-taking ability is going to be important because we need to take action. This episode is a complete call to action. So put on your headphones, pull up the notepad, and lean in. Here's my episode with Alec. Hi, Alec. Thank you for joining me on Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. Hey, Carrie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. And I love our conversation. I'm going to tee it up for people because I want them to lean in because it's going to be good. But before we get there, mm -hmm. let's let our listeners know a little bit more about you, Alex. So what do you do and how did you get there? Sure. Thanks for asking. I'm a growth marketer. And uh, in the past couple of years, I've also become a certified privacy professional as a way of amplifying and making my um, growth programs slightly more ethical. I started off, I guess my, my journey started back you know, in 2010 as a meme page admin, which is a bit of a silly story. Uh, you know, in, in high school and in college, I started a number of social media accounts on Facebook, you know, the blue app that were uh, you know, mostly student focused, uh, you know, creating like silly memes and content. But one, a lesson I learned very early is that, you know, pages, especially back in the heyday of organic social media reach, which now you have to pay a lot for, uh, Facebook doesn't give that away for free anymore. Um, if you amplify posts from multiple pages that people follow, it's much more likely to be viewed in their feed. So having multiple pages focused on similar topics, amplifying some of the same content, we were reaching more people at my uh, university, NYU. Um, than, you know, the student newspaper. And I was really important on a decentralized campus. And I was able to, you know, even change some policies at the school that were important to me for good. Um, so I, I studied communications and political science, and I wanted to turn that, um, you know, experience and, and knowledge into a career. So I started off working in political campaigns and advocacy, some of which I'm still doing now. Uh, got started in drug policy reform, and then I started a nonprofit for uh, digital rights, especially how they affect students and educators. That was really influential in my 
um, you know, in my career, I, a lot of the same skills that I learned then are extremely applicable to what I do now as a growth marketer, where you know, you're designing calls to action and engagement funnels and moving people through these funnels from, you know, as being a interested listener to an evangelist, uh, you know, what I now call like an affiliate or a, uh, you know, an engaged repeat customer. So I, I did some work in, in politics and then out of college, I worked at Google and then a number of startups. I'm currently working for two uh, cybersecurity and a financial security uh, startup, very early stage. Um, one of these, I was their you know, first non first hire outside of the core team of uh, co-founders and helping them get started. And um, I'm also a data protection professional. So I try to work at companies where I can, uh, you know, use that knowledge to both like make the growth programs compliant with laws, as well as adhering to best practices and gold standards for consumer data handling, as well as um, affecting the product as it is concerned with privacy, which is, I think, very important with cybersecurity or uh, companies that have products that deal with sensitive topics, such as healthcare or, um, you know, and, and anything that might need to reach people that there might be policies against, say, regarding advertising or, um, or just needs to be handled sensitively. So- that's that. My gosh, what a journey. I have so many questions. So many questions. It. Yeah, no, we're going to get into the topic, but I, I do want to pull yeah. apart your story a little bit um, because you said a couple things here that are mm -hmm. just fascinating. Uh, growth marketing. Let's start with that. Um, I feel like growth marketing's evolved where mm -hmm. it's not, the title has changed periodically. So mm -hmm. I feel like the, the, the title of growth marketing has fallen off. I feel like I haven't heard that in a while and has it evolved? Is it still growth marketing? Is it a different title? Is it in this transition or is growth marketing really different than the other titles that are sort of thrown out there right now? I, I love this question. When I first heard the term growth marketing and heard of growth marketing or growth marketers, uh, to me, this sounded like lazy attempts of marketing where you're just exporting data from LinkedIn and building, you know, re like pumping it through ClearBid and then building a remarketing audience in Facebook, just like lazy stuff that is often like very hacky, like it's very much associated with, or used to be associated with growth hacks. Um, and in like the politics side, this would just be called digital. You're just a digital person. <laughs> and um, and like my how I got into you know demand generation and growth marketing was by accident, where I started off uh, handling events and com communications, marketing operations at a startup, and then my uh, uh, my uh, boss, the the director of demand generation, left the company. And I inherited a lot of these responsibilities. And at first I was hesitant because I thought that demand generation and growth marketing would just be the same at any company. I was at a company where I really liked the product, at, at least at the time. And I thought that it would just I would just be doing the same thing. It wouldn't take any creative energy. But I realized that it is imbuing a like technical background with like the creative uh, tactics and uh, I, I, there's, there's some parts that feel like maybe a little mundane, like, okay, I'm setting up another Google analytics account, connecting Google tag manager, you know, creating all of these things on the back end. The foundation. But, oh, absolutely. Well, it's, it is, I've learned that it's very important, especially for early stage companies. It's probably the first marketing role that one will hire where uh, I think all of the, you know, any kind of responsibility can fall into this and there's opportunities to specialize in a few channels that I think can really set you apart from other growth marketers. I think like I've been, you know, called a like jack of all trades, but I do have, you know, some specialties that I think set me apart. And I think it's important for any marketer, especially growth marketers to have a couple of channels that they go deep in and specialize in, but have a broad background so that they can, uh, you know, learn things as, as they go or just do the, you know, the, the basics, especially if they're the only marketer at a company. So I, to, to your question, I, I do think it has changed. I, maybe my association with it has changed too. Uh, I no longer think of it as cringy as I used to, although there's certain aspects, um, you know, depending on how it's executed, that can be a little unsavory. Um, but in in my uh, in my understanding, it's the best way of, I, think, I guess, getting your foot in the door at a company. And then as companies grow, you might be able to specialize in an area that you feel more uh, interested in. Yeah, it sounds like there's some overlap too between growth and demand. Like there's there's some blending there. I heard you mm -hmm. see both of those things yeah. sort of interchangeably. And I think I, I do use them interchangeably. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where things have headed. And I like what you're saying where growth sort of was this initial sort of hacking sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like they always, the example I always see, which is so dated now, which was when Google first launched their email system, Mm -hmm. Gmail, right? And at the very Mm -hmm. bottom, they said, you know, sent from Gmail. And that was like a hack in terms of getting more people to then buy into Gmail. Um, And I just don't think those things, those are a dime a dozen. That's not easily replicable. Mm -hmm. It is those deep, knowledgeable Mm -hmm. things that you sort of stack on each other and grow over time. Not everyone has the built-in audience that Google has. And I I think like I'll I'll get into later, like every growth channel, um, you know, there's a, there's a cycle with it where there's a period where it's very fresh and people aren't used to it, but then people spot these or as they become, um, you know, utilized more widely, uh, people learn to tune these out that like, oh, this isn't, uh, this doesn't feel like authentic to me anymore. This is just the same kind of, you know, automated text or like, you know, email campaign or, you know, multi-level marketing style, like a (laughs) referral program that people are are used to. Yeah. Don't be starting that. I'm waiting for TikTok to, um, Mm -hmm. to get there, but I, I don't do that anytime soon. Yeah, we'll see. We shall see. Um, my other question to you that you mentioned, so you're now doing cyber and financial security. What's, mm-hmm. so I, I understand what FinTech is and I understand mm-hmm. financial, but this is, this feels new. Financial yeah, I'm, security? I'm new to this. I'm new to this space as well. Uh, the area that the company I'm working with called Credence, C-R-E-E-D-N-Z, uh, specializes in is uh, like vendor fraud in particular, where that is actually the most common type of financial fraud, uh, where, I mean, it has the highest dollar amounts, um, where say, this is extremely common, more common than I realized, where um, a like say a scammer or con artist will uh, gain access to a third party systems, like say a vendor of yours. Uh, and this, this affects all types of companies, especially like mid-market and larger companies, but uh, smaller companies with fewer employees have fewer checks in place. So they're actually uh, the ones that sometimes see the most damaging type of you know fraud. And it's also very common in uh, like real estate and like title companies. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So say that the parts supplier says that, okay, for future, uh, you'll get an email from them or maybe an email that looks just like theirs. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, they say that, okay, from now on, send your payments to this new bank account. Um, and it comes to, you know, from the same email address they've mm-hmm. used. And so th- this has happened, you know, Facebook and like has been hit with these, you know, a lot of companies have fallen victim to these type of scams where they end up paying the wrong vendor and that money is quickly like siphoned out or converted into cryptocurrency and you don't get it back. And yeah, this is wow. the most common type of financial fraud, much um, even in terms of dollar value, it's more um, impactful than, you know, fraud that impacts regular consumers because there's just more money to be made in there. And like the example of, you know, real estate, say uh, you're so the, the broker that you're dealing with, their account becomes compromised. They, they use, the, they reuse the same password on their Gmails they use on their, uh, like that one-off, you know, Passwords. you know, photo design web app. And, uh, they say, okay, we, you got the house here to send the down payment to this address and you, uh, send that payment and you end up losing it. And the thing is, is that the, um, the, the company, you know, involved is responsible for this, where, uh, if, you know, if your account is compromised, you're going to be on, uh, you will be held liable for, um, if not all, then like the vast majority of the damages. So there's a huge incentive for, for uh, companies of all, si- uh, of all sizes to have standards in place that maybe will check, uh, you know, bank account numbers as like a uh, against a list of like fraudulent accounts or um, other discrepancies like changes and or there's you know portals where you know vendors will authenticate changes like this. So. Uh, it's it's important, but it's a it's a new space for me. I've I'm learning a lot about it as I go. I feel like it's new in general, like, and and this is the category space that happens right when these security's huge, and then yeah. cybersecurity is a cent, is a piece of that that's huge, and then there's all these different categories in this, and this is the first time I've heard mm. financial security, which makes mm-hmm. total sense. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, also think about how the pandemic has changed how we work in offices versus working remotely. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing your coworkers or say that the CEO sends you a request saying, hey, I need you to pay this vendor. Like it can happen internally as well. Say that, that account is compromised. You don't see that same person in the hallway and can ask like, hey, did you just send this email or, or hey, I'm going to send yeah. you that payment. Um, and so it's a lot more important to have other systems that uh, encourage verification when you don't have these face-to-face interactions as often as you used to. And I think it feels faster now too. The way that we respond to things feels very reactive. So I think a lot of people are learning to sort of question and slow their role, or maybe I'm in an echo chamber because mm-hmm. I'm in the, you know, in the cyberspace and mm-hmm. so that happens, but it's just, yeah. it's just fascinating to me. Let's switch gears here. Because I could pull apart your story all day. There's so many interesting nuance to it from poli sci to NYU um, was the dream. It was the dream. I wanted to go to NYU, Mm. but I never feel like we go on this journey to be marketers and we sort of end up here with this lovely mixture of background that then facilitates our ability to be really good marketers because we were able to cultivate all this different, all these different skills from this journey we take. So I, I love the mixture of skills mm-hmm. you bring to the table here, mm-hmm. um, which is going to lend really lovely to our conversation. Before we get there though, what's one challenge you're currently facing? Something that's keeping you up at night mm-hmm. that feels really hard. What What is that for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly touch on this. So one thing I'm experiencing and the companies I'm working with, these like B2B software providers is the long sales cycle that we have, mm-hmm. where it's not always apparent, you know, how like, you know, how your channels are doing, whether you're reaching the right audiences, uh, whether these leads you're bringing in are qualified, whereas when I worked at a consumer product, uh, it's it behave. You're dealing with a larger pipeline of customers, so it's uh, the, the you know the difference between like one lead and two leads, like a week. You know that that can be huge, but that's sometimes that can just be very random. Whereas uh, when you, you know when you're dealing with longer or, or sorry larger customer size bases and shorter sales cycles, it's a lot easier to you know uh, see if your um, you know efforts are having an impact. And sometimes these drawn out sales cycles can. Uh, you know, hurt your revenue if it's not what the company expected. And uh, I'm seeing that in like many other companies where, uh, you know, budgets are having to be reduced because, you know, companies, you know, took on, you know, large investment rounds and aren't able to meet these aggressive growth targets that they had now that we're in this downturn. So I'm sure you're probably wondering how I would overcome this challenge and something I'm still working on, but at least one of the companies I'm working with, we're transitioning to a product-led growth model mm-hmm. where we have a free version of the product. Yes. That, uh, and, and that helps. I mean, one, I think it's just a great way of letting people experience the product before you know dropping a five or six figure you know uh, mm-hmm. contract on it. And it's, you know, widens your pipeline. It also gives you the opportunity for, you know, remarketing to these people, like once they've had a chance to experience it or uh, like, you know, bringing people back and gives you more customers or potential customers to analyze like, you know, how the product is doing. You can monitor changes and how they are impacted. So I would say that a product-led growth model, if if it's applicable to your company, is um, very useful. And I think that uh, will, you know, broaden your reach and, you know, shorten that sales cycle. If you haven't listened to it already, for those who are listening, check back to the very first episode of this year to Peter Wheeler's episode, where he literally talks through how to build a freemium model and the power of that. So I love that you're talking about this, Alec, because it really, I feel like everybody steered away from it because they felt like the leads they were getting weren't the right ones because they weren't buying fast enough. But from a long-term standpoint, if you can bring people in initially who aren't ready to buy from you because they're too small and they're not ready, but then once they start needing those features and they need to stack up and then they need to grow, like they grow with you. And it's sort of this really empowering, beautiful story that unfolds with, with startups. And it's really hard to stay patient in it, but yes, I, you know, and it gives so much power to small businesses who need these tools Mm -hmm. that y'all are building and allows them to get their foot in the door with you. And then as they grow and scale from small business to medium size, to scalar, to enterprise, like they grow with you and they stick with you because you gave them that first shot at, in initially. So yes to that. Yes. 
Mm, I bring exactly. you so much joy. Mm. Um, I, I'm going to circle back with you and, and next year, and I'm going to hear how it's going for you. Sounds great. Let's talk about, this is what's so lovely about your background and the collection of uh, skills you have from poli sci to now being certified, certified, is that the right word in terms of, Correct. yeah, certified in, in security. So I first want to understand how you made the leap. Like sure. when you told your story, it was like, I was doing this and now I'm doing this. How did you make mm -hmm. that transition from more of that um, meme growth stuff to now being in, in cyber and, and fin security? Sure. So uh, it goes back to 2012 and 2013. Um, I was very motivated. Uh, I was maybe in some senses overly optimistic seeing uh, companies get involved in the SOPA and PIPA protests, I think back in 2011, 2012, um, for, you know, like keeping the internet like free and open, uh, as well as uh, like the, the huge net neutrality battle that was going on with the FCC and how that evolved over the years. And uh, so that, that was, those were very formative years for me. And uh, I had experience working with a uh, international nonprofit that was student led and focused on drug policy reform. And I, that was a huge, you know, professional development uh, accelerator for me. It taught me a lot of the skills that I'm using today, but I realized that there was not an equivalent organization for uh, digital rights, which was a newer interest of mine. So I started off, you know, creating petitions and learning about internet privacy from the activist perspective. And I had a lot of this knowledge uh, and I realized, you know, years later that, I was like still relying on this knowledge as I was creating my marketing programs and thinking about best practices. Um, and I realized that, you know, I could translate this, you know, knowledge into practical uh, skills and, and uh, tactics that I could use in marketing. So I, was, uh, I also met someone who is a, uh, not a lawyer, but most lawyers do have the certification or most people that have the certification are lawyers. Uh, uh, that is a data protection professional. And I learned about the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which is the international gold standard of privacy certifications. And uh, I uh, thought, you know, I'm just going to try taking this test to see if I can pass it with my knowledge, uh, you know, from learning about these laws. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't pass it on my first attempt. I think that because it wanted, it showed that, you know, this is, there, there's a serious body of knowledge in there. You need actually you need to read the book. Uh, so I studied a bit more, um, you know, read, read all these white papers, read the book and came back and I uh, passed the exam and which, you know, I, I, the exam I took was for, uh, was based in the U.S. privacy laws that focused on privacy sector, as well as, uh, you know, privacy laws here in the U.S., but which also incorporated, you know, international laws like GDPR, uh, which is extremely important for marketers to know. And, you know, using that knowledge, I think, gives a, a lens of credibility to me when I'm, say, applying for jobs. It, to my knowledge, I'm the only marketer that has this certification. It's more of a uh, legal field, you know, distinction, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it it has been very informative and I'd encourage anyone with a little bit of like interest or is interested in, you know, interested in specializing in, uh, you know, this area, say for companies, there's a lot of companies that do make privacy enhancing tools and software or the, the cybersecurity industry or uh, companies that deal with sensitive, you know, consumer data where having this certification would set you apart. But yeah, as it's, it's funnily enough started with my interest in advocacy as a bit of an outsider. Let's talk a little bit about privacy. Tell me more about like what this, what is, what data protection privacy even mean? I mean, I think we all know what it means. How, you know, mm -hmm. my, most of my audience is very savvy, but in terms of what you've been through, what does it mean to you? Sure. Well, there are both gold standards, like, uh, you know, baselines of clear protections that you should give consumers that uh, there's been a few, you know, a few of these that have been released that um, describe general tenants that marketers should know. And then there's also laws that need to be complied with. So some of the most important laws that like, marketers will, you know, come into contact with is the European Union's GDPR. In California, we have the CCPA and the CPRA, which will have gone into effect by the time this episode is released. Uh, there's a privacy law in Delaware. 
And then there's a few channel specific privacy laws that marketers must comply with, like CAN SPAM, which has a long acronym that isn't worth repeating, uh, but that governs email privacy. There's the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the TCPA, which not only affects phone calls, but also text messages. And then there's some industry specific laws, like in the financial sector, there's a few, as well as HIPAA. And that's HIPAA with two A's, not two P's, uh, that affects healthcare laws. And, the, and those, uh, the all those except for GDPR in the US, but as marketers, you know, most of the time you're advertising to or re trying to reach a global audience. So it's, uh, and if you have anyone like on your, if your product is available to people outside of the US in the European Union, you do need to comply with the GDPR. So it's uh, having that, you know, legal background is uh, really important. You don't, because it can open you up to fines if you don't comply with these laws and also just best practices. People recognize when um, their data is being used responsibly and uh, people do care about this. And there's like, you know, data out there that shows this. I mean, every time I open my, my Apple phone and it tells me if I want an app to track me, mm -hmm. right, I get the choice. Which I always choose now, which is sort of ironic being in the advertising industry, I always choose now. But the fact that I even have a choice, right? So I'm curious, what's sort of the, I'm asking you to simplify and dumb this down, which I know it probably goes against every fiber of your being about how technically complicated all this stuff is. But what's sort of the overarching theme through all these things? What in terms of privacy, is it giving power back to the user? Is it making sure that we're just not collecting and using their data for more than what what we've promised in terms of like, you're going to get this exact newsletter for this exact thing and nothing else? Like what sort of having gone through all of these, knowing these front and back and the certification, what's sort of the high level of what these things do? So you touched on a few of the things that I would have brought up. I would say there's four central tenets uh, of consumer privacy. There's individual control, like you described with those prompts. And I think that, uh, I mean, going, I want to touch more on those prompts and like how, like, you know, consumers can be incentivized, like if they know how their data is used, if they're going to get more value, uh, that they might choose to give the, the business more information about them. But, you know, okay, so the first tenant, you know, being individual control, you know, being able to delete and reclaim your data, uh, choosing how the data is shared, what data is shared. Uh, second tenant, I would say is important in consumer privacy is respect for context. So say when uh, Twitter was fined for using telephone uh, numbers that people were providing as part of two-factor authentication for their uh, like ad targeting system, like that is not a respect for context. So uh, understanding, you know, the difference between like, you know, what consent you obtain that data through and making sure that, um, you're adhering to that or giving consumers a chance to reauthorize use of that data in a different means. The third tenant around consumer privacy is security, where making sure that data is protected and stored properly. Um, I'm sure you've, you know, if you've signed up for many of these services that alert you when your data is found in a data breach, it's becoming increasingly common. And it's, there, there's a, uh, it's, it's a fallacy that, that the responsibility should be all on consumers' hands. Like I, I was a, um, like I've mentioned, I was a privacy activist. And back in that time, uh, I had a privacy breach where a third-party developer on Facebook, uh, they were using, I guess this is more of a violation of the respect for context, but they were collecting, in order to use their app, you had to authorize sharing your friends list. And they scraped those images and then used that to create profiles for your friends, even though your friends had never used that app. And then uh, I, and they took it a step further and were using my images in their marketing materials. So I found myself, you know, in a press kit for this awful uh, third-party app. I had nothing, no interest in being a part of. But the, the point being is that I, at this time, I considered myself a privacy expert. And I thought it was, you know, I, I use a password manager. Uh, I had like good data hygiene. I had two-factor authentication. But still, a lot of these things don't matter if the businesses aren't treating your data properly with respect for the context um, and also securely. So, so you know, you know, safeguarding against breaches is obviously a, a very important thing. But you know, there's other steps that businesses should take. You know, comes to de-anonymizing the data or anonymizing the data. So making sure that, like, if there is a breach or that you know that data is you know more protected, there's less of a fallout. You know, hashing passwords and and etc. 
the fourth tenant I would say is important in, in individual consumer privacy is access and accuracy. Uh, there are some financial laws that uh, that require this, but many um, many law like I guess many sectors of you know consumer data aren't governed by a law, and I think that that needs that those protections need to be expanded. So being able what access and accuracy means is being able to view what data a company has on you. And California has done a lot in that regard so that uh, consumers can send a uh, request to understand what data that uh, is held and also delete it if needed and you know verifying the accuracy of it. Like there's it's it's possible that you know marketers can segment their populations and like you might not get ads for like a uh, say like you know like discounts on a home or whatever if you live in an uh, in an area that they think that you you know you can afford it and that's very unethical like in a form it's a very unethical form of targeting but um, one like you know shouldn't do that in the first place but two like you should be able to remedy this and be able to clarify what information is um, you know stored on you and there's some you know applications out there that make this easier I know consumer reports now has a free tool where you can send these requests uh, more uh, streamlined and the companies will get back to you after verifying your identity so you know those those are the four tenants that I say are most important. There's there's others, um, you know, general philosophies like collection limitation and specifying what purpose what purpose is, uh, you know, general openness and transparency, um, and like you know, third party accountability when when applicable. But I would say those four tenants I went through are things that every company, large or small, should follow. I like want to unpack all of these, but I think. A more logical stance would be to talk through how we use these from a marketing standpoint. Like this is a lot. And it's just sort of question everything we do from a marketing standpoint, from the lists we build and how we build audiences off of that, mm -hmm. to how we collect data, what we do with it. I have to say, I feel like third-party selling has sort of died off a bit. Maybe, maybe not as much as it should have, but I feel like that's definitely like, I, I understand why that's lower on your list. I feel like people get that. Like mm -hmm. if I'm collecting your data, it's for me and me alone mm -hmm. versus me now reselling that information. Yeah. Like, that's taken. Yeah. Well, good. I, it, it is still out there. When I worked at Google several years ago, I did see all these like third party, like data lists that you know, it was built into the service where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, companies can, you know, create, find audience lists that are based on affinity and interests and, um, you know, uh, like demographics that Google doesn't provide that, that expands on those. And, you know, that's, it's still out there. I think that there is more like, you know, respect for, I'm hoping there's more respect for how this data is used, but uh, I think larger companies still have access to these types of tools. And it's also very prevalent in um, political advertising more than ever. Like, you know, these, these surveys will like, I mean, I, I've seen both sides where I feel like, you know, this information can be used for good. Like you could maybe mobilize persuadable voters on an issue that I think is very ethical, but at the same time, it can be used like, uh, you know, to suppress the vote or, uh, you know, misinform people. So I think that's a that, whole different yeah. like avenue that yeah. this podcast could take. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, uh, especially with voter, like with the elections and what's been going on with that in terms of outside influence from other countries. So we're never going to deviate yeah. from that. <laughs> Next but, podcast. Um, that is a, that is a whole other podcast, and maybe I'll have you back on to discuss mm -hmm. that. But for this mm -hmm. podcast, and specifically for the audience, I'm 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 working with in terms of all this information, which is really important. And while I think we should all get get certified, if we are collecting data in any sense. I do think we need some level of certification of what of how we should handle that data in a really ethical way. So for you and your experience, as we all look to be sort of convinced on going to get these certifications, what's your sense of how we should use this, the, these best, what are, what are the best practices that we should be taking away and how we approach our own marketing? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll touch briefly on the best practices, but I'll, I want to apply it to some like you know, common questions that I think your listeners would have. 
uh, say like, you know, the platforms that we're all using, like Google analytics or ads or, or say like AI models. So, you know, best practices, like I've mentioned, you know, respecting the context. Uh, but I, I think this isn't, this shouldn't just be treated as a negative thing. Like you, like you described those, um, those prompts that you have on your iPhone, or if you want to share your data with an ad, uh, sorry, with a, uh, with the application. I think that there's, uh, a lot of opportunity for applications to give pre-prompts to explain the benefits of giving permission for data sharing. So making sure that, you know, customers are informed and that they can like understand the benefits if there are any to sharing that data. So I think that it needs to be a treated as an education opportunity, not just, okay, I'm being, I need to comply with these pesky data protection laws. Uh, rather, I think you can set yourself apart by com communicating transparently um, or uh, giving cons uh, consumers more control over their data. Like there's there's now things called CDPs, known as customer data platforms that can streamline management of first party data and assets and customer pre preferences. So, um, you know, creating these assets, uh, I mean, this doesn't all need to be built in house. There's like, you know, services that provide these systems uh, that, you know, can integrate with your like cookie management tool or provide that on your website. Uh, these types of tools can be, uh, very seamless and unobtrusive. So, but under, you don't need a certification in data privacy uh, to know these and or or to follow these. And I think that's important for our marketers to understand. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad or give you a bunch of homework. Rather, telling you that like I, I did the research so that you don't have to. So, yeah, I appreciate that, yeah, yeah well, giving giving people controls. We're all yeah, very busy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, pre prompts, giving con context, uh, giving more controls. Those are, I think, some of the baseline things that people can do that will also um, make sure that they're com uh, compliant with GDPR or at least the the, the baseline of it. So when it comes to uh, specific apps, I would say that. Uh, when it comes to GDPR, uh, by default, Google Analytics is not GDPR compliant. So you actually need to obtain explicit consent from end users through a cookie banner before you activate Google Analytics um, and also describe the data processing in your privacy policy. So th this I, I've encountered this, say, in my own businesses where or businesses I do marketing for, uh, where our conversion tracking is not always accurate, where I will send, you know, we have, we run LinkedIn ads on our, uh, the, the free version of our product and it LinkedIn does not show the con same conversion data that we have on our backend when we see how many users have signed up for it, because, uh, many of these users coming to the site, when they sign up, they haven't agreed to, they, they don't need to agree to share data, uh, in order to access the product. So th there is a, a lack of clarity sometimes that marketers are having to deal with now compared to what we had 10 years ago, but that's, I think that just means you need to find like other opportunities to, you know, develop growth channels and like have more insight into, uh, you know, the backend on your, on your system to see, okay, where are these, like, um, where are these people coming from? Maybe the data doesn't go back to, um, you know, to Google analytics or to LinkedIn, but maybe you can see, you know, uh, based on what you can create different landing pages where you can have one landing page for your LinkedIn ads, one landing page for your Google ads or different campaigns. And you can use that information to uh, like, based on, you know, how many, you can look at your, uh, you know, LinkedIn platform, look at how many clicks you got, look at, you know, conversions for that page and see how many new customers that were brought in through that page and just do some basic math. And you'll be able to, you know, calculate that same information that LinkedIn or Google would have otherwise given you. So I think the, it's directional yeah. too, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're working with large, this is great for smaller companies who maybe aren't working with large quantities of data. And so they mm -hmm. do really need to make sure that every impression leads to somewhere, right? Right. But when you are a bigger enterprise and you have a ton of data, like you don't need, you can look at this. I mean, Google already says that the data they collect is, you know, a fraction of what's probably actually happening, right? So- right there is some direction, directional gut check that you sort of can do of like, okay, mm -hmm. there's enough data here to quantify that this is working or isn't working. But I love what right. you're saying in terms of segmentation. Like, I think that's mm -hmm. from a landing page standpoint, it is a bit more like work. Um, yeah. But that makes a ton of sense if you really do want to be that granular in terms of how mm -hmm. much information you're collecting to know exactly. that the dollar you're putting in is the dollar you're getting out. 
yeah, yeah, these are just options, and I'm sure there's yeah, other ways great. that people can figure this out. A couple of other uh, practical applications for how different, you know, popular marketing uh, tools are affected by privacy laws would be Google Ads. So, uh, can standard keyword search advertising, you know, where you're just targeting keywords, not uh, not uploading, you know, a list. Uh, those are not affected by GDPR or other privacy laws, but you do need consent for remarketing and conversion tracking. So that's, uh, but so, you know, Google ads, it's still, uh, or even like LinkedIn ads, like where you're just that are the non remarketing kind, or that, you know, if, unless you're, uh, absolutely need conversion tracking to work, you can still run these ads and be compliant with GDPR. And the third you know topic I want to touch on is, um, AI. Like I've, I've used, um, machine learning models for, uh, expediting say our like how we view new leads um like based on the information they submit and like pre-qualifying them based on the information they submit but um the, the rights that uh, in gdpr that could be violated by um you know ai would be automated decision making if but that means if you're only using ai to make a decision not if you're like having an extra layer of human review but th this makes a lot of sense you don't want to deny people you know access to a essential service because they like because of the type of grammar they use or the type of slang they use that's not ethical and then the second would be in gdpr would be the right to erasure where identifiable data is stored on a third party server uh, or you use that for generating your models like you'll need to track down that piece of data and make sure it's removed so but if it is anonymized you know if there's no personal identifying information on it then um, that does that is still compliant where you know that can be used without it violating the uh, right to erasure there's a lot here. So let's just back yeah. up for a second. I do think there's a huge question around Google Analytics right now. So let's back up to mm -hmm. that right now. Out yeah. of the box, you're saying it is not compliant, which I think we're all aware of, especially as countries continue to, quote unquote, outlaw it. Um, it sounds like GA4 is better, but still not completely compliant. So what is there a way to make Google Analytics or GA4 compliant, mm -hmm. or so, is it just mm -hmm. is it just not? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. So I've worked for companies that only deal with uh, customers in the United States. So we did not need a cookie banner, um, even if someone from like the EU arrived at our site. Like we wouldn't accept a claim, like a a lead from them um, if they tried to input their information. So. Um, and like we we can also uh, you can filter that data out there are settings in there um, but it, it is compliant if you have a cookie banner and you're not collecting that data beforehand so most uh hey if when i travel to the eu and i you know load up the same web pages that i visit from the us i'll sometimes see i'll often see cookie banners that i wouldn't have been exposed to so you can have you can implement these technologies so that they are only shown to users in the EU, if that is a concern for you. Um, and so you can continue collecting information from people um, in other countries if needed. But uh, yes, by default, it's not GDPR compliant, but it's very easy to you know have that switch. And I think like I described before, having context and informing people like of the benefits of sharing that data, if there are any, um, you know, if, you know, depending on your, your business, like I think there's many, uh, opportunities where people would want to share that data, but it just needs to what, be properly educated. Yeah. So how do you educate people if they're just coming to your website and browsing? Like, is it in that cookie banner? Is it in, is it in these pop-ups? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, how do you make that information accessible? Yeah. I, I've seen uh, many different types of banners. I like the ones that uh, don't use dark patterns, like, you know, the the big bold button that says like share my data and the tiny grayed out button that says like, no, thanks, don't collect my data, or that makes you individually toggle each toggle off uh, and like after opening sub menus. So I think, um, yeah, there's like the, the pre-prompt education phase where uh, you're saying like, hey, like, hey, our, um, our our business like you know re relies on this consumer data. It's uh, it is uh, uh, anonymized. You don't need to worry about you know this this system tracking your information. Here's a link to our privacy uh, you know statement, which should be very simple. Um, you know, uses little legalese as you can possibly manage. And uh, so 
I, I think when people are informed and they say that, you know, they can be better like reached and, and like, and we can understand more about our customers. Um, I think people can be receptive to that type of, inf- of messaging, but there's, there's always going to be people that like won't even, you know, acknowledge the, the cookie banner. So I, I, I'm not in favor of the huge pop-up that blocks you from using the site, but um, I, I think there's, you, you should look around at like other, like when you're deciding this, deciding what uh, route to take for your own business, look at other businesses, maybe use a VPN that puts you in the EU and see how other, you know, companies that you, uh, other websites that you use treat this information. I mean, I'm in the UK and I get cookie pop-ups mm-hmm. all the time to the point where I'm just immune to it. And I just hit, okay, 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 okay. Unless there's something, um, Oh, I, I really just hit a lot of okay because I want to get to the content mm-hmm. and I need it out of my way. <laughs> and I understand marketing and advertising. So yeah. I'm like, you know. Um, I, I call that privacy fatigue. Yes. <laughs> totally having privacy fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, is that really all that you need to be like GDPR compli- or even for California to be compliant when using Google Analytics? Is, 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 is it that simple? Yes, the, the, just the consent and also describing how personal data processing happens in your website's privacy policy. Wow. It feels so much more complicated when you're like trying to dig through it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, it's it's simple. Like when you understand, you know, the the, the um, purposes of these laws, um, it, it, it is a little tough, uh, say, you know, with with my company, like, as, as I described, our, you know, conversion data is not very accurate for our free product right now, because we show a cookie banner to all users. And it's also very subtle. I think that in, in the future, we might, uh, you know, have different like toggles for, okay, this, this information could be used for like, uh, you know, like just general website analytics or, uh, like retargeting. And I think there's some people that would be okay with just general website analytics and not like being retargeted with ads. And I, I think that's, uh, so giving, giving consumers options and making those choices very clear is the way to go. All right. Last question for you, Alec, in terms of, this is so, this is so helpful. Cause I feel like we're all mm-hmm. so overwhelmed by how to be compliant and, and to a point where we, I don't want to say give up, but like, it, it just feels very daunting. Um, and you, you really helped focus on what we need to like clearly start with and care about. In the age of where cookies are eventually, Google keeps pushing it, but at some point cookies are going to go away. Um, is that from an ethical marketing standpoint, is that the right move? That's a great question. I think there is some anti-competitive nature to, you know, Google or other, you know, large, very large tech companies having cookies go away because Google has a lot of first party data. They, you know, track you through your browser, they track you through search. It is the the, the biggest like top of funnel, you know, uh, data collection experiment to exist. So I I think that it it is complicated because I also carry a lot about, you know, anti-monopoly practices, making sure that, you know, the the next Google can have a chance to compete. Um, I, I do think there's benefits for consumer privacy, but I think it's, it's to be determined if this will have a net benefit for consumers overall. So how can those smaller companies compete then against Google in terms of like, if they're no longer collecting cookie data and that third party information, mm-hmm. sure, they're going to be using you know, Google Analytics and listen and all that, but mm. how can they, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, okay, we sort of got to go back to the dark ages of collecting first party data ourselves, which we're already doing mm. to an extent, but I don't know that we're doing it as diligently or as intentionally as we used to. And it feels like we sort of got to head back there, especially with demand gen being so like, take users on a journey where they get to make their own decision of at what, what point they want to interact with you. So ungate everything and, mm-hmm. you know, ABM, all the things. It feels yeah. like we sort of need to find a balance in that if cookies are going to essentially go away. Is that mm-hmm. is that the case? So I think this presents an opportunity for creatively driven marketers to come up with new growth channels, uh, which is something I think I like. I try to specialize in. Mm-hmm. Where you are right that we 
there do, does need to be more first party data. Um, and it's unfortunate for, you know, marketers that have gotten through, you know, through their career so far doing just, I guess I would describe some of these tactics as like lazy, like just using technologies that already exist and deploying these platforms and letting them do the work and just bringing that data to their CEO. And uh, there's going to be it's going to be a greater need to build platforms or what I call microsites that uh, encourage engagement that are, uh, say, like free to use um, or like other you know ways of acquiring users that don't rely on these centralized platforms. One of my uh, favorite acquisition uh, channels is affiliate marketing. And uh, one of my greatest accomplishments at a previous company was building an affiliate marketing program, like building the, the software in-house using uh, automation tools like uh, Zapier. So creating these, yeah, creating these platforms that can, uh, you know, bring uh, potential customers into your, you know, um, into into your websites, uh, give them a reason to share their their stories. Whether it's like a, you know, a, a microsite like a complaints forum, or maybe interacting with like a, a newswire or some other like free service that you've built. And it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. But these are uh, like kind of going back to you know just uh, uh, organic search as a as a greater channel. You know, building more engaging content that people will want to sign up for. Like. It it does it does require more investment where you're not just you know relying on a platform to find these users for you because these costs are rising. Um, you need to start building out alternative um, channels, but this is really important because uh, companies you know that learn at one stage or another um, over reliance on one or two growth channels is bad for business. Uh, when these you know when Google changes their search algorithm or the ad prices ad prices rise, uh, you your company can be hung out to dry if you don't have a backup plan. So diversifying your acquisition channels is a best practice in general, but it's going to be increasingly important uh, as cookies are deprioritized or eliminated. Um, people need to have these other channels like affiliate marketing or you know, uh, or content that is uh, applicable to your target audience. This conversation, I hope everybody has a notebook in front of them and they have mm -hmm. filled pages of information mm -hmm. because, or, or head to the website and download the transcript because this is so actionable. And I think in a time of compliance and security, this is so important for how we protect our users and their data and building that trust back with our audience mm -hmm. because it's... It's so what we got to do right now as, as marketers and advertisers. Advertising and marketing isn't going away, but the more that we lose trust, our audience uses, loses trust in us, the, the harder we're making our jobs. So mm -hmm. I love what you said. I just want to circle back and make sure we say this again. In order to build trust with our customers and to be ethically compliant, we need to give them individual control over their data to say, yes, collect my data or no, and to, and to be able to let them toggle that off and on and to be able to access it later and change their minds. We need to be clear about the context in which we are collecting their data and respect that we're going to stay within those boundaries. We're going to ensure the security of their data so that it doesn't isn't hacked or accessed or given away in, in anything that we haven't promised and make sure that it's accurate that their data mm -hmm. that we have collected they again they can access and is and is up to date so alec i'm so grateful for this conversation it's everything i've been hearing sort of whirling around the sphere but it hasn't been brought so to the table in such a clear way of how we could activate it without feeling daunted or overwhelmed so mm -hmm. i appreciate your clarity Thank you. Is there anything that just one last piece of advice you would give people as they continue to embrace the idea of ethical marketing? Yeah. So I'll share a little bit about my philosophy. First, I want to describe, um, I guess, certain tactics that I view as unethical. And some of these I'm guilty of, uh, I would say peer-to-peer -peer texting, which was like at first a novel uh, tool, but now is used to spam people's phone uh, messages without having obtained consent. And uh, like just this morning, literally today, I received a text from a number that did not have my permission to contact me that the first line read, hey, contact first name. 
like because the, they they messed up the uh, mail merge tag so it, it just it just shows that the the clunkiness behind it and it wasn't like someone trying to initiate a conversation it was just someone trying to send me to their site i think that the best types of automation should move information around or open the door to human interaction instead of replacing it that's a theme that marketers should really remember that like creating opportunities for these one-on-one interactions but you can still use automation but use that to open the door uh, and not just replace human interaction. That is the direction we should go in. Some other, you know, unethical uh, types of marketing that I'm still guilty of were uh, like Twitter automation. You know, adding people to a list if they tweet out a conference hashtag, or bribing people with gift cards or headphones in order to get a meeting to for the, uh, with them. Um, these types of things they rely on like FOMO marketing, like limited time offers or psychological manipulation. Uh, it's not good. Uh, other things I haven't done that I recognize as unethical are, you know, sure we all get emails without an unsubscribe link, marketing emails without an unsubscribing. Oh, that drives link. me nuts. Yeah, I know. That's, I, I will reach out to the company's marketer on LinkedIn. You'll, you won't hear from me. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> I'll call you out. Uh, limited time offers, like I mentioned, uh, um, using data in ways that you didn't obtain consent for it. And uh, just broadly, you know, company executives taking on too much money and having to deliver unsustainable exponential growth. Because I think that is the environment that pushes marketers towards uh, manipulative and unethical marketing. So my my philosophy around ethical marketing is that is the opposite of lazy marketing that supports surveillance capitalism, where surveillance capitalism, meaning the economic system around the capture and commodification of personal data for the core purpose of profit making. And most marketers are complacent in this cycle of consumer abuse when their growth program is allowed to run amok. As we've discussed, consumers bear the burden of safeguarding their own privacy, but we need to switch that. Um, you know, marketing often relies on psychological manipulation, micro-targeting and FOMO. And as marketers, there's an opportunity for us to imbue creativity and take responsibility with how we reuse and share consumer data. The, the last thing that I want to share is um, I this you know talking to you has inspired me to start sharing these programs uh, these step by step guides with marketers because it's one thing to wax on around why you should be ethical but a lot of people don't like might get through this podcast and not know where do I turn like how how okay this all sounds really complicated or confusing or challenging so what I'm going to start doing and I uh, release the first episode the intro and by the time this this comes out I should have three or more uh, podcasts that I've already scripted and with guides on my website. The first one is going to be about how to build that in-house affiliate program that I mentioned. Uh, I'll I'll give you a step-by-step guide on literally every step to create in Zapier that includes anti-fraud checks so that you can offer affiliates a higher payout than competitors because these affiliate uh, software providers will charge around 30% of the cut of of the uh, the payment that you're offering affiliates. So um, if you, you know, you're already in your podcast app to search ethical marketing tactics and subscribe to that and you'll start getting just the nuts and bolts, just the step-by-step guides on how to create new growth channels that your CEO will love and you'll feel good about. And I'll also post, um, you know, guides with like imagery on my website, which is www.ethical.marketing. And that's my outro. (laughs) Thank you, uh, Alec. I will make sure all of that is in the show notes so that you can either type it in or you can click a button and it'll take you right there because I agree that everything you said that was unethical felt icky. Like as you were saying it, my skin was crawling and I was like, I've been there and it is the worst. Like if I get one more email where I'm clearly on an email list where they scraped my email from somewhere Mm -hmm. and didn't do single leg of, of work to figure out if I was going to be the right company for them. Like it just, and then to not have an unsubscribe button on top Mm -hmm. of that is the worst. Exactly, and then you add but, the wrong name yeah. to it, and it's just a whole <laughs> other level of yeah. Like... You you did it. You did it. Configure it right. But as I mentioned, I'm I'm guilty of many of these things. Like, I think the first step is like recognizing that you yeah. have a problem, and yeah. I, I think we. I'm I'm trying to take responsibility. I'm sure I'll still make mistakes at some point, but uh, I think it's just having this general philosophy of respecting your consumers uh, because they will give you more information. Like data, you know, suggests. I mean, surveys have shown that 
uh, only one third of uh, customers believe that cus that companies are using their data responsibly, but two thirds of customers would consider sharing their personal information to get additional value. So there is an opportunity for when, when you, I'm sure there's brands that you are familiar with or that you've done business with that you see as like ethical brands that mm -hmm. uh, you feel good about their business and want to support. And when you, you know, I think like having a human that you associate with that brand, like that, that personal touch or, um, you know, the, the consent that they've like obtained from you and like how they've gone about navigating that. It's, it's just like the same kind of respect that you would expect in a like face-to-face -face relationship with a friend that like, you, when you start seeing your customers as people, um, you will, you know, be able to deliver more value to them and bring more people into your business. Oh, mm -hmm. Alec, this has been such a joy. I'm so grateful. Thank you for joining me on Tea Time. And My pleasure. Uh, I hope our paths cross again. Sounds great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can continue this conversation at a later date. That was my episode with Alec Foster. Are you ready to take action? Are you ready to make sure that your marketing is ethical? I am. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. And if you have any more questions, you want to understand more about how you can make your marketing ethical, please, please reach out to Alec on LinkedIn. His link is in the show notes. Thank you all for joining me. What an eye-opening conversation. I'm so, so grateful. And thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please like, subscribe, and share. This episode is brought to you by MKG Marketing, our ETF that accelerates submission of cybersecurity vendors via SEO, digital ads, and analytics. It's hosted by me, Carrie Gard, CEO and co-founder of MKG Marketing. Music mix and mastering done by Austin Ellison. If you'd like to be a guest, please visit mkgmarketinginc.com to apply.